Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Until we understand the depth of meaning in this simple act of service, Jesus washing his disciples' feet can pass by as just another scene in the path from the Last Supper to the cross. Teaching team member Jeff Norris finishes the series, Neighboring Where You Live, with this message entitled, Serve Your Neighbor, which covers John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45, and Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Amen. Amen. We're... I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. If you've been with us, then you know that uh, we've been in a series that we've been calling Neighboring Where You Live, and we've touched on uh, seeing your neighbor, seeing your neighbor through the eyes of Jesus with eyes of compassion and action towards that person. We've talked about having our neighbors in for uh, a meal with our our neighbors in our house or just somewhere in the community. Uh, We've talked about praying for our neighbors. We've talked about sharing our faith with our neighbors. And so this week, this is the fifth and final week of this series where we're going to look at uh, what does it look like to serve our neighbors, to serve them in the way that Christ has served us and the implications of that. So excited where God's leading us today. Just a quick note, Randy will be back with us next week. He's been out these last five weeks, not really out in the sense of being away, but he's been in this hour, in the 1045 hour, uh, been doing his investigative forum And so he'll finish that up this morning, be starting a new series next week uh, that he'll lead us in for the coming week. So I hope you'll join us for that. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into where we're headed this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for the great privilege it is to open your word. God, we believe that your scriptures are holy and inerrant, that they are the very means through which you speak to us you soften our hearts, that you, you encourage us through your scriptures, you convict us, you challenge us, you, you make us more like you. So God, would you, uh, this morning, would you, would you give us ears to hear your word, the truth that is contained within it? Would you give us eyes to see your beauty? And Father, for me as your mouthpiece, God, would you use me in a way that whatever is from you would be retained and remembered for a long time, and what is not from you would be forgotten quickly. Holy Spirit, we invite you here to do your work among us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So um, one of the biggest influences in my life, God has used many, uh, many folks in my life over the years in my spiritual journey, but one of those particular people is a guy named Steve Johnson. Steve was uh, the Campus Crusader crew director at Alabama when I was a student there, when Rachel and I were there, very involved in that ministry. And Steve was uh, the one who really, for the first time, helped me understand the scriptures more than I had previously. He gave me a deep love for the scriptures and then consequently a deeper love for Jesus. And um, those years were special as Steve poured into my life. But uh, little did I know that there would be a second time, so to speak, where Steve would pour into my life even more when, uh, after graduating, Rachel and I got married, uh, then we joined staff with crew, and we served on staff at Southern Miss, we served at UGA for a number of years, and then we moved back to Tuscaloosa in 2008 to lead the crew ministry there. And when we got back to Tuscaloosa, Steve had obviously transitioned off staff with crew and was now a pastor 
at a local PCA church in town. And we joined that church. And so here I was again, Steve, my pastor, investing in me. So there's literally countless ways in which Steve has impacted me that I would never be able to measure. But there might be one instance that, at least in my memory, stands out more than the others. It happened on an afternoon. We had only been in Tuscaloosa for a couple of months and we're trying to get everything situated in the house that we bought and we start realizing that we have a a leaky pipe underneath our kitchen sink. And so I had kind of gotten under the sink and messed around with it and tried to figure out what was going on, but I was clueless because you need to understand something about me. I am the least handy man person ever in the history of the world, ever. I've learned a few things here and there over the course of owning homes over 17 years of marriage, but, but me trying to fix a leaky pipe is uh, akin to me trying to write the mathematical equation for gravity. It's just not gonna happen. And so I called Steve, and I didn't call Steve uh, to come over. I called Steve because he lived in town for a long time, many years, and just said, hey, who's a plumber I can trust? And he says, are you at home? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I'm here. And he says, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Okay. So sure enough, about 10 minutes later, he's at my house. And he's on his hands and his knees and on his back for an hour and a half fixing my leaky pipe. And he wouldn't let me do anything. And here's the kicker. He did it with joy. Like, that's weird. (laughs) But he enjoyed doing it. He enjoyed serving me. Now, what what stood out to me about this is that I know Steve and I know his schedule and I know all that he had going on and I know that he dropped probably a lot of things to come and to serve me. I didn't ask him to. He wanted to. He saw a need. He saw someone who needed help and he moved towards me with love and compassion. And he served me. Does that sound familiar? A couple of verses here for us to remember from Philippians chapter two and then from Mark 10. It says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Listen to this from Mark chapter 10. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now I want us to pause for just a moment because many of us have grown up in church, around church and involved in some group like crew or navigators or intervarsity or whatever it may have been for you in college. For those of us who have been in those circles, Mark 10, 43 through 45 is not unfamiliar. We've heard it a lot, but I I want us to just stop and process the gravity of what Jesus is saying there. He's saying the God of the universe in human form came not to be served, but to serve. In other words, the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth who deserved to be served, didn't didn't come to do that, came to serve us, who because of our sin don't deserve to be served by anyone, much less by God. We, We struggle with service, with a servant's heart. 
What Christ did, what Steve did for me on that afternoon, we struggle with it because we, we live in a culture, we live in a society where uh, platform and success and prestige are our ultimate And really, this isn't just a cultural societal thing. This is a heart thing. This is true of mankind. You go all the way back in the annals of history. This is true of humankind that we long to be served. Think about the American dream even. If you boil down the American dream to the just kind of the base level of what is it saying, it's ultimately saying that success can be had to the point to where you can achieve a status in life to where others serve you. I can make it to the point to where I don't have to mow my grass anymore. I can make it to the point to where I don't, well, first I can own a home. And then when I own that home, if I'm successful enough, I don't have to clean my own home. This is part of the American dream story that we have bought into that you get to a place to where you expect. you have paid your dues and I no longer have to serve. I see a need. I call someone. Surely somebody else will take care of that. And there's actually people who are paid to take care of that. So I won't intervene. I won't move towards that person in service. When Jesus came, he didn't come just, certainly he did, but he didn't come just to save us from our sins. He also came to reorder everything that has been twisted and marred and turned upside down by sin. And part of what he's doing in ushering in the kingdom of God is he's turning back on its proper head what it looks like to be a person who belongs to the kingdom of God, not one who is to be served, but one who serves. As one author put it, I love this, in the kingdom of God, greatness is measured by the yardstick of service. I love that. So turn with me to John 13, and we're gonna look at a passage where Jesus does something in this passage that absolutely baffles, mystifies, confuses his disciples. He does something that they just go, what? what, what? Let's read about it. John 13, verse one. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let me pause. I'll pause at different points along the way and just give a couple of comments to make sure that we're tracking along and we're all on the same page understanding what's happening here. So one of the things that we're told right off the bat by the Apostle John is that this is the Thursday night before Christ is crucified on Friday. These are the last hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Not only is it the night before, but it's, it's the annual celebration of the Passover meal that the Jewish people had been celebrating for centuries and centuries, going all the way back to when God had led the Israelites out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And he had done so. Remember this story, if you're not familiar. Remember this. What had happened to lead them out? What did God do to lead them out of slavery and out of bondage? To the Egyptians. What he did was this. He said, for you to be spared and for you to be set free, I'm going to do one final judgment, one final uh, plague on the Egyptian people. I'm going to kill all the firstborns, but for you to be spared, here's what I want you to do. I want you to slaughter a lamb 
And I want you to take the, the blood of that lamb and paint it over the doorposts of your home so that when the angel of death comes through, he will see the blood and he will pass over your home and you will be spared. Now, little did the disciples know in this moment is they're eating a lamb as a part of the Passover meal in remembrance of what had happened way back then, way back then that they were standing in the presence of the lamb of God, the one that that had foreshadowed had now come. And now he's standing in their presence and he is about to pour out his blood on the cross willingly and sacrificially and then say, if you believe upon me, I will, so to speak, paint my blood over the doorposts of your hearts. And as I come to you, as God's judgment comes to you, I will pass over and I won't just pass over. I will declare you my child. And they're not seeing all that in this meal. They're thinking they're just having another normal Passover meal. But things are about to change and they're about to change quickly because Jesus is about to do something bizarre. Verse two, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. John's giving, giving us a lot of precursors here before the action takes place. He's simply reminding us of the divinity of Jesus, that he is one with the Father, and what the Father knows, he has given to the Son, and he knows this is my last hour. I'm about to go back to the Father from whom I came, with I came. And I know everything that's about to happen. I know that Judas is about to betray me, and I have loved my disciples to the uttermost. I could not have loved them more, so now is the time. So verse 4 Here's what happens. Here's what he does. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now we got to stop at this point. If you've read this passage before, my guess is that it's at this point that you keep reading and you don't think much about it. You just go, okay, cool. He put a towel around his waist. He took, up, took, out his, uh, took off his outer garments. But we've got to pause here because what he just did in that verse four is profound. What they would have understood is that he took off two pieces of cloth. He took out the flowing outer garment, laid it aside, and then he would have taken off his tunic with the belt that would have satched around his waist that would have held it in place. And he laid that to the side so that now he is standing in front of his disciples only in his loincloth, which not coincidentally, very purposefully by Jesus is the attire of a servant. And they are going he doing? Why is, why is he, he's the king. He, he's the one that here soon, he's going to march into Jerusalem and, and overthrow the Romans and give us back our political and military freedom. And he's the Messiah who we've come to expect to do those kind of things. He's not a, he can't be doing this. See, this meal was a secret meal. Jesus wanted it to be just him and his disciples. And so with that, no one else was to be in the room, which meant there was no servant in the room to do what was customary in first century Palestinian culture, which was when you walked into a room for a meal of this occasion, it was customary. You really just into anybody's house in general, it was customary. If you had a servant, the servant would immediately wash your feet. 
but there was no servant in this room. And so what would have been expected at that point is that the disciples, one or two, maybe three of the disciples would have noticed that there's no servant here. And so based upon the rank of the disciples, because that was kind of how that culture worked in that day, not in terms of value, but in just terms of society, there were some that were closer to Jesus than others. He had an inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And then he had those that we don't hear as much about as part of the 12. And so one of those lower guys should have recognized there's no servant in the room. Let me take the role of a servant and I will wash everybody's feet. But you know, that didn't happen. And do you know why? One of the beautiful things about scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, particularly with the gospels, is we begin to overlay them because each are telling us many of the same accounts but from a different perspective and you begin to overlay them and you see, oh, this is kind of what was happening at that moment. So we look at Luke's gospel. Take a look at this. Look at Luke's gospel. And he's talking about this same night, this same meal. And he says, the dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Then he says this, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader is one who serves for who is greater, one who reclines at table, we'll talk about that in just a moment, or one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But then look at what Jesus says here. This last sentence is, is huge. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Now, I think it was at this moment, when you, when you look at John and Luke together, it was at this moment when he says, but I am the one among you as the one who serves, is when he stood up in the midst of them arguing about who is the greatest and began to shed his outer garment and his tunic and take the role of a servant. And the debate ended. You got to see that we are the disciples. We have to enter into the story in such a way from the disciples standpoint that, that this is what you and I would be doing. We're sitting here arguing about who among us is the greatest while Jesus, the king of the universe, is serving us. So the disciples didn't take on the role of the servant because they were arguing among themselves, who is going to be the greatest? Now you notice that it said in there, talked about reclining at table. Now we see the word recline and we think maybe lazy boy recliner, right? We're just all those sitting around in these recliners eating their meal. It's not what it looked like at all. Or we might think of the Last Supper meal and we may picture the, the famous painting from Leonardo uh, da Vinci that uh, depicts it this way. And this is very, a very middle ages per, um, you know, a perception of, of the meal. Uh, it did not look like this. They were not sitting in chairs around a table, all looking the same way with Jesus in the center like that. In fact, it looked more like this. To recline at table literally meant to lay down and eat. I miss my calling of a culture to eat in. <laughs> I cannot think of anything greater than just to lay and eat. But they would have reclined at table like this. Let's put it back up there real quickly. Notice, notice uh, where are the feet? The feet are the farthest away from the food as possible. 
Now they would have laid most likely if they're right-handed, they would have been laying on their left elbow, reclining at table, table in front of them about a foot off the ground, reaching over and eating and just enjoying the meal. Now this meal would have been a long meal. It would have been a four to five hour meal. It would have been a lot of talking and interaction and laughing and celebrating. And this was not all that uncommon. The Passover meal was longer than normal, but it was uh, to eat in this first century Palestinian culture was very common to be a long affair. And I think about that and I go, man, I think we've missed it. We can't even, we don't even have time sometimes to drive through the drive-thru. We miss the relational connection that God intended us to have around a meal. But the feet were way back here. And there's a reason for that. First century Jewish culture believed that the feet were the dirtiest part of the body. Now, it's not like that's all that different from us today. I don't know anybody that's like, oh man, the feet are the cleanest part of the body. I don't know anybody that's like, please put your feet on me and preferably in my face. That would be awesome. (laughs) We still think the feet are dirty, but this is a whole new level, right? I mean, Rachel, even to this day, 17 years of marriage, if my feet are anywhere near her, she's like, please get those away from me. But it was a whole different story back then. Think about why. They're walking around in open shoes. Think Birkenstocks, okay? They're walking around in open sandal-type shoes on dirt roads everywhere they go. But it wasn't just the dirt and the grime, but it was also the fact that you've got animals that they had in everyday life doing their business on those roads. And so you can imagine gross, okay? So you walk into someone's home, you walk into a mill like this, it is customary that the feet get washed, and clean, and then even after they're washed, let's put them way back here, nowhere near the food. I'll come back to that in just a moment as far as the significance of what Jesus was doing, but look what happens. Because this was a, a, a task that was reserved for a servant, watch what happens, verse five, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. They are blown away by what he's doing. Verse six, Simon, man, you, Simon Peter, my boy. I love Peter. I resonate so much with Peter. Peter's the, the boisterous one. He's the talkative one. He's the one that speaks before he thinks. I say, yes, I understand that. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? That's the way of saying, like, you're not doing this, are you? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. You, you got to understand this, that, that he's not saying that after I finish washing your feet here in a couple of minutes, you're going to understand what I'm doing. He's talking to something bigger and greater. Jesus did this all the time. Jesus used physical acts of whatever he was doing to point to what was to come in the full fruition as the kingdom comes and as he is ascended into heaven and the spirit is poured out. And that's what he's referring to here. He's saying, look, there's going to be a day that's coming after I finish my humiliation tomorrow And after I go to the grave and after I resurrect from the grave three days later and then after I ascend and after Peter, the spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost and you receive the spirit, then things are going to be, begin to make sense to you as to what I'm doing here. But right now, I know you don't get it. Jesus is often doing things that point to a greater significance down the road. And so Peter, after hearing that, says, you shall never wash my feet. Now, this is a, uh, this is a strong, double, negative imperative 
that Peter is saying here. He is saying, you will never do this, Lord. Probably in the motion of pulling his feet back. So Jesus responds and says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter, as he did, flips totally around. So he says, Lord, verse nine, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, give me a bath. I, guys, I, I just, I love Peter because Peter is me. Peter is a man of extremes where one minute he's walking on the water and full of, full of faith, trusting with Jesus as he's walking on water. And then the next minute he's falling and beginning to drown and crying out to his God for help because he doubted. Uh, this is Peter who for one moment in the, in the shadows of the cliffs of Caesarea Philippi is declaring, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus affirms him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you didn't get that from man, but from God himself. And you are the rock, Peter. And then literally a minute later, Jesus is rebuking him because Peter's rebuking Jesus saying, you can't die. This is the same Peter who in this moment, one minute is saying, don't wash my feet. The next minute he's saying, give me a bath. This is the same Peter who just a few uh, moments later on this very night is going to declare to Jesus that I will never deny you. In fact, I'll give my life for you. And then uh, just a couple hours later, he's in the courtyard denying Jesus three times. This is the same Peter who, even after having received the Holy Spirit, which is such a reminder that even with the Holy Spirit, we, we are still works in progress. We're not perfect, we're still sinful, we're still learning, we're still growing, we're still being made into the image of God. And that was true for Peter too. Even an apostle where one minute he's eating with the Gentiles in Galatia and he's put aside all racial stigma and, and, racial, and racism in all forms of fashion. And he said, look, this, the gospel's for everybody and so Jew can eat with Gentile and it's blessed and it's awesome. And then the Jews come around and he pulls away, warranting the right rebuke of another apostle, Paul, to say this is not in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter was back and forth and back and forth. And I say, whoa, that's me. And so you see Peter bucking against what Jesus came to do. Uh, two things I want to give you in this sermon to walk away with here is that first one is this. When we think about what Jesus came to do, when we think about the kingdom of God that he has ushered in, a couple things that have to be true. First one is this. There must be an inward allowance of Christ's cleansing. There must be an inward allowance of Christ's cleansing. We can be just like Peter. We can see what Jesus came to do and we can become resistant and say, not, not there, Jesus. Don't go there because what we have to understand is this. Don't miss this. This is huge. This is critical. What Jesus came to do, the reason he was washing the feet was not just to physically wash his feet to, to, uh, to play out the custom of the day. It was way deeper than that. What he was signifying to the disciples and now to us is this. I came to cleanse the dirtiest places of your heart. That's why I came. The dirtiest places of your life, I came to cleanse that. Will you let me? Or will you say with Peter, no, don't go there. In the homes that we've lived in, 
We've lived in five different homes in the course of our marriage. There has always been at least one closet, sometimes more, that becomes the junk closet. The closet where everything gets thrown and there's always good intentions. There's always the mindset when we move into a new home, this is not going to become a junk closet. We're going to keep it order, orderly. We're going to keep it uh, in, in, you know, the, the, the jackets are going to hang here. We're going to have drawers here. We're going to, everything's going to be nice and tidy. And within a matter of months, it's a junk closet. Uh, I think in four out of our five houses where that closet exi- has existed, there, it's been a closet without a light. Because you don't want to look at that. Now you can throw it in the darkness and it's just like it's not even there because you shut the door and everything else is put in place. A lot of times it becomes a junk closet because of the busyness of our lives. We don't have time to pick up everything that we need to pick up before somebody's coming over. So what do you do? You take everything that you want to be nice and presentable and you throw it into the closet. No light. Close the door. Like it's not there. You know, we do that in our hearts. We have, we have closets in our heart where we have tucked away in the deep crevices of our hearts into these little closets around the bend in our hearts where we've tucked away things that we say, don't go there, Jesus. And Jesus says, look, I didn't come for just a nice, presentable, tidy living room of your heart. I came for the closets as well. I came for everything. Are you going to let me come and do what I came to do? Because oftentimes in Christian culture, what we have established as the norm is that, that we define godliness and maturity by well, not by how well we confess our sin and how open we are about the extent of our sin and our ugliness and the dark crevices of our hearts, but we tuck it away and we convince ourselves that the more that we do that, the more it's acceptable in our culture. And we're right. And so we don't define Christianity oftentimes, Christian community oftentimes, is the place where I can be open and vulnerable and honest, because here's why, because I want people to see how big Jesus is and what he can do and what he can cleanse and what he can take from me. And you need to know how broken I am so that you see how great he is. It's all about him. But instead, we define Christian maturity by how, by how well we hide our sin. And we call it godliness and we call it holiness, but we're not doing anything but pretending. And Jesus says, give me your feet. Give me the dark closets. Give me the dark crevices. Talk openly about it, not to be shamed, not to be condemned, but to be in a safe environment where we run to Jesus together and say, isn't he awesome? But we struggle with that because we are convinced that if we go there, we will be shamed. And you know, the sad truth is, is oftentimes we are. And Jesus took the feet of his disciples, not just to wash the feet, but to look into the eyes of the disciples and say, this is bigger than what you think. Let me cleanse you. And when that begins to happen, When we begin to experience that deep cleansing of what Christ came to do in us, then a second thing begins to happen that must begin to happen. Here's the second point I want you to walk away with. There must be an outward expression 
of Christ's service. When Christ begins to do what only he can do in us, then we begin to have a longing more and more through the transforming work of Christ in us to be that very display of service and cleansing to the world around us. It's right here in the text. Look at verse 12. After he's washed the feet, he says this. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, if look, if I'm the Lord of all creation, if I am the, the teacher that you say that I am, and I am, and I have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. There's a longing that happens within us that we would long to see as Christ does his work in us to be used to do that very same work in the lives around us. To go and do the same thing that Christ has done for us. To begin to love our neighbor and serve our neighbor in the same way that Jesus has served us. Think about this. How has Jesus served us? He served us by by loving us and serving us with, um, without condition, so unconditionally, selflessly, sacrificially, humbly, that we would be a people so transformed by the work of Christ in us that we begin to serve those around us, our neighbors even, in such a way that is so unique and different from what is common to man, that, but is unique to Jesus, that the people around us begin to look at us the way the disciples did that night at the dinner table. They begin to go, what, what are you doing? That's, that's crazy. Whenever we begin to talk about being used by God to do something that only he can do, which is one of the mottos or is the motto of this church, Randy, if you've gone to Taste the Perimeter, you've heard Randy talk about this over and over again, that we, we long to be a church that attempts things so great for God that they're doomed to failure unless God be in them. So we want to see God use us, but whenever we begin to think about individually, how may I be used, we begin to get hesitant because our minds automatically go to my insecurities, my weaknesses, my inabilities, we begin to think, I can't do that. I can't serve the way that God served me. I want to pray that God would use me, and I want to pray and be dependent upon him as deeply as I do when I'm about to board a plane. <laughs> I'm an anxious flyer. I have been my whole life. I've gotten better the more I've flown, but I, I still don't love it. When I'm about to get on, I was, I was boarding a plane a few years ago, and as I was praying, getting onto the plane and into my seat, I was, it hit me, and I said, Lord, I want to pray with the same fervency, with the same, same dependence, and the same heart attitude. I want to pray like that all the time, the way that I do when I'm about to get on the plane. And then it began a thought process. As we're just sitting there waiting on the plane to, to taxi down the runway, I, I start thinking about why is it that I get so anxious about flying? And one of the things that, that began to click in my mind is the reason I'm so anxious and dependent 
on God when I fly is because it's at that moment that I am most keenly aware that I don't have any control. I cannot control what's about to happen. Even a little bit deeper than that is not only do I not have control, but I have no power. There is nothing I can do that will make this big hunk of metal work. I am completely dependent. Dependent on God, I'm also dependent on that pilot to do what, I, what he's been trained to do. As I was processing, processing this and as I was praying this, it was as if the Lord whispered in my ear, you know that's no different any day of your life, right? You're never in control. You never have the power. You never can pull off things and make them work. It's always me through you. So when we think about serving our neighbors and those around us, my prayer would be that we would realize how we can't do it. And we have to be dependent upon God and his Holy Spirit within us to do what only he can do. And listen to me, guys, I am absolutely convinced that if this church body in and of itself, it's not about perimeter, it's about the kingdom of God. But if it, this church body began to live dependent lives on the power of the Holy Spirit within us to do what only God can do through us to serve our neighbors, I think our communities, our cities, our neighborhoods would be drastically different and the kingdom of God would be coming in much more fullness than we get to see right now. Some of us are doing it. It's not like we're all not doing it. But man, what would it be if we began to serve in tangible ways the way that Jesus has served us? We're not talking leaps. We're not talking giant strides. We're talking baby steps. And so we've tried to make this as simple as possible on your way out on the boards on the way out. Grab one of these of a part of the neighbor up challenge. We've got these things down here at the bottom that you don't tear like one off, like take the whole card. Okay. And really simple, easy steps on what it could look like for you to serve your neighbor. If you missed a previous week, there's, there's, there's these tags that hang for all the previous weeks of how to pray for your neighbor, how to have a meal with your neighbor and all those things that we've talked about in the past. Grab one of these or all of them if you haven't gotten them yet and let this serve as just an easy baby step next step for how to serve in the way that Christ has served us. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together this morning. Lord, we pray and ask that you would make us a people who first and foremost allow you to cleanse us. Allow you, Jesus, to do what you came to do, to give you not just our presentable places in our hearts, but every part of who we are for you to cleanse us to the uttermost. And then we pray as we experience your cleansing power that we would turn and do the same and seek to serve others in the way that you have served us. Would you do that through us, Lord? And would you bring your kingdom to bear both in us and through us? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.